This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Actives Investing Today podcast. I'm super excited to be speaking with Nell Minow, Vice Chair of Value Edge Advisors and advising firm to shareholders. Previously served as a co-founder of the Corporate Library and its successor, GMI Ratings. And she also previously held the role of President of Influential Proxy Advisor, Institutional Shareholder Services, which she helped form. And she was principal at activist investing firm Lens Investment Management, which she co-founded with governance guru Robert Monks. So uh, great background and really appreciate it. Nell. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. It's a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk to you, Ron. Okay, cool. So today we're going to talk about the biggest proxy fight of 2021 and one that has been described as a contest that could drive a major change in the way director contests kind of emerge or the, the thesis behind director contests in the months and years to come. And of course, I'm talking about the upstart activist engine number one successful installation of three director candidates, including two renewable resource experts and a former top oil and gas executive to the board of ExxonMobil in a contest that came with an environmental twist and really wrapped up uh, last week. So just a little bit more background on this. Engine number one is fully funded by the founder, Chris James, has 250 million in capital and it bought a 50 million, 0.02% Exxon stake. And the campaign involved a traditional tactic of seeking to install distant director candidates on a board. And it was coupled with an environmentally themed campaign urging Exxon to allocate capital towards solar and wind power development and cut what it viewed as risky energy investments. And so, you know, this was a traditional director election contest, but it had this very strong environmental theme. I mean, if you talk to engine number one, they would argue it had a very big economic theme as well, but you can't dispute the fact that it had this big environmental theme where they were supposed to focus on solar and wind power development and uh, cut back on, on certain energy investments. So, so now I know you wrote a Harvard Law School forum review of the contest titled Memo to Corporate Directors. So it sounds like you're sending a message to other directors and other companies. So overall, what was your impression of the campaign? And let's start with that. Well, I was a little surprised by it. I think everybody was. And I've been describing it as the biggest upset since David and Goliath. Because when we say normally, when we talk about proxy contests, we have to emphasize the proxy contests themselves are very, 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 very rare. They're less than 1%. And successful ones, are, of course, are even less than that. But in the proxy contests that have succeeded over the years, you know, you want to think about Michael Douglas's Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. We had somebody like Carl Icahn, who would come in maybe at the 5% stake and would come in and say, greed is good. And these people are wasting your money and I'm going to sell the company. A lot of times he was just going to sell the company. Quite often the candidates that he put up were just random people walking down the street or somehow connected to him. They were not, they didn't have any special expertise. They were just there to do whatever he told them. And on the rare cases that there were proxy contests that was successful, it was either successful that he won the seats or he got paid money to go away or they did what he wanted anyway. That's basically the way it went. So the idea, and by the way, we did this at Lens too. So I know how hard it is. The idea that you could come in with a tiny percentage of a percentage of stock and try to persuade other shareholders to vote with you. It's a very, very daunting challenge. And let's be clear that... Engine number one spent $30 million right. to get the word out. Right. So, proxy solicitors uh, and also and lawyers, the, lawyers, the, lawyers, lawyers, and lawyers, 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 lawyers. Yeah. Okay. But really, engine number one did everything right 
with one small exception that I'll get to. So here are the things they did right. They picked a great target. They picked a company that, they, that there's there's no better asset that you can have in a proxy contest than leveraging the frustration of the current shareholders. Mm-hmm. So this is a company that lost $22 billion last year. The year before, they raised the CEO's pay by 25% for no particular reason. And they were lagging far behind their peer group. This is not uh, you know, a feels good woo woo kind of analysis where we say, well, ooh, ugh, fuel, you know, fossil fuel is terrible. They say we are investors in all of the fossil fuel companies. And compared to the other people in this industry, you are doing very, very badly. And so engine number one had the numbers on their side. So that was good. Another thing that benefited them tremendously was the many, many mistakes made by Exxon, not only the business mistakes, but in the way that they responded to this. They made the biggest mistake of all by refusing to meet with engine number one. That is the kind of thing that makes shareholders very angry. They lied about engine number one's views. And that is not only bad judgment, it's insulting. Shareholders don't like that when the views that they've expressed are all laid out in writing, can be read, and are contrary to what Exxon was saying about them. So Exxon handled everything very badly, aside from all the strategic choices that they've made that resulted in them losing all this money. And then, shockingly, they halted the annual meeting in the middle. Yeah, I saw that. Made a desperate series of phone calls to try to get people to change their votes. Again, very insulting. Too little, too late. The one thing I would argue with engine number one about is that on engine number one's proxy, they did not make any recommendation on the four shareholder proposals that were on the proxy. One of which, by the way, we want to talk about because it did get majority vote. It was successful. And if I, yeah, yeah, if I were engine number one, I would prove my commitment to shareholders by saying, yes, these shareholder proposals are all very worthwhile. They did not do that. They wanted to stay out of it, but they nominated outstanding candidates, not the Gordon Gecko type candidates, but people who had great credentials and they had chosen a perfect target. So they did everything very, very well. So let me, uh, since you mentioned that they had great candidates, I just want to read you a little bit of the bios of the different candidates that got installed on the board. And keep in mind, again, like uh, Nell mentioned, the the board did not have an executive background with oil and gas expertise, except for the CEO, Darren Woods. So the activist got uh, Kaiza Haitela who's from Finland, who held the role of executive VP for renewable products at Finnish oil refiner Nesti. And uh, she helped the company transition towards renewables and was viewed by many investors who could be viewed, uh, could, could, could credibly help Exxon make this energy transition shift that engine number one had been pushing for, really shift towards renewables like she was considered to have done at Nesti. And then they've successfully elected Gregory Goff, who was a former chief executive of refining company Andover, which was sold later to Marathon Petroleum. And then most recently, there was an updated AK last week. And it turns out the activists got this final, a third of their four distant director candidates, Alexander Karsner, a senior strategist at the Innovation Lab for Alphabet. And he was a former U.S. assistant energy at the U.S. Department of Energy, focused on energy efficiency and renewable energy. So they got these uh, these three director candidates elected. So I'm curious, uh, Nell, if you can uh, have any thoughts. You know, the, the company did bring in Jeff Ubin, who's considered this kind of ESG guru. And clearly they brought him in earlier on in the campaign, hoping that that would convince enough institutional investors 
that, you know, they shouldn't back the engine number one candidates. They brought in Jeff Uman. They actually brought in two other people, one of which was viewed not so favorably by the Institutional Shareholder Services because uh, he came from a state oil company in Malaysia. Then the other one was a, as a Comcast executive. But, but anyways, I'm just curious about whether you felt like the Jeff Ubin backfired. I'm curious now, you know, Jeff Ubin will be on the board along with these three new directors. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we talked about the company's made a commitment to bring on two additional directors, one with a kind of environmental background and one with an energy background. So I don't know. What do you think about the company's moves on installing their own additional directors and how that played out? Well, I think it was too little too late, like those de- desperate phone calls during the annual meeting. Uh, if It w- might have been different if they had agreed to meet with the candidates and talk to them, but to reject them out of hand and put on their own people, it just looked very fishy. And I just want to emphasize again that this is a 100% financial decision on the part of these investors. Even if you love fossil fuel, even if you think it's the greatest thing that was ever invented, they're not making any more of it. They're going to run out of it eventually. And so you've got to have some kind of a plan to transition as the other people in this sector are doing. And with Exxon sort of putting its fingers in its ears and going, la, 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 instead of trying to figure out what they need to do in the future, it's not just for environmental reasons. It's not just for the fact that we've got a different president now who has got a very, very science-based focus on ESG type issues and environmental issues. It's also that there's a massive demographic shift and the millennials and Gen Z are vastly more committed to looking at uh, climate consequences than their parents. And if you are going to keep up with the people that you are employing with your investors and uh, with your consumers, you have got to do better than Exxon has done, which is why they lost $22 billion. I can't emphasize that enough in one year. That was historic loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you talk about the, uh, the, you know, the investors, the Gen Z investors, I always think about kind of the shift we're seeing at the big three index funds. BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, which, uh, you know, they controlled, I can't remember what it is exactly, something like 20% of Exxon, um, or huge, huge percentage of the, the you know, the top uh, shareholders. And they made commitments on climate change, which was interesting. And actually, BlackRock had raised concerns, and I think voted again for the separation of chairman and CEO at Exxon uh, the previous year over concerns on climate issues. So anyway, so there clearly were like the things that I could see the uh, engine number one and the, the team, including Charlie Penner, who came over from a traditional activist, JAMA partners, could pick up on and say, you know, these guys have made these commitments on climate change. It would be perceived as contradictory if they didn't vote for the distant directors, or at least some of them. You know, BlackRock ended up supporting three, State Street and Vanguard two, you know, when they make these commits. So I guess uh, now maybe you could just kind of uh, walk me through a little bit here. What does it say that these big three index funds uh, provided some level of support for the dissonance, even after the company brought on Jeff Uber and the ESG expert from his impact of capital and these other directors and things like that? Well, it shows that they did not think that that was adequate. And, you know, I just want to reiterate, this is capitalism 101. This is exactly how capitalism is supposed to work. We seem to be shocked when it does happen. But if there are, what, three to 6,000 public companies in this country, and we only have one proxy contest like this every God knows how many years, you know, it shows that perhaps we're, it's not quite a level playing field when it comes to shareholders pushing back a little bit against management. And so it shows that the 
largest, most sophisticated investors in the country, people who are fiduciaries and therefore have an extra layer of responsibility, were not persuaded by the defensive actions that Exxon took. Mm-hmm. You think that they would support a new campaign at another oil and gas company or another ESG, you know, ESG focused director contest in the future? Does this suggest that, you know, I guess it's kind of a two part question. You think the big index funds will support this and director candidates with a, you know, a kind of combined energy and, and uh, environmental theme contest in the future? Uh, do you think we'll, you know, see more of these kind of these contests with an environmental theme? And perhaps what somebody suggested to me, he thought maybe we'll see the, you know, this is the E, you know, maybe the S will step up. Will we see more? Uh, so maybe this is a three-part question. <laughs> maybe we see more uh, S uh, campaigns where, you know, that push a director contest to push to diversify boards at companies that maybe that are lagging their their peers and have economic problems or diversify their employee base. Look, there's a reason that accounting principles are called generally accepted and not certifiably accurate and, you know, and comprehensive. They are pretty good at telling us the value of hard assets and the present value of streams of revenue. They're really not good at answering some of the key questions in the 21st century about corporations. What is the one thing that every company says in their annual report is their biggest asset? Their people. How good is Gap at valuing the intellectual property? and the social connections and the capacity of the asset that goes home every night. Terrible. ESG is just an enhancement to GAAP. It is a better predictor than GAAP of investment risk. If there was a single corporation in America that in 2019 had as a part of their agendas for board meetings, the possibility of a worldwide pandemic and how they were gonna respond to it, I would be very, very, very surprised. But ESG-based analysis, will bring those kinds of questions into the boardroom and certainly is of interest to investors. So the answer to your question, your three-part question is really just a one-part answer, which is that ESG is increasingly understood as an essential element of securities analysis because it evaluates risk better than any other metrics that we currently use. And yes, we are definitely going to see more activity like this because success breeds more success. And so you're going to see an emboldening of smaller shareholders, if we can call a $50 million investment a small shareholder, but you're going to see that you don't need to be Gordon Gecko to win a proxy contest anymore. And I will tell you, based on my own experience as an activist investor who never won a proxy contest, we got what we were asking even when we didn't get elected. Mm-hmm. So if we, for example, we had a proxy contest at Sears because we said you've got a lot of non-core assets and they're not helping each other at all. And they ended up divesting of all of them. So mm-hmm. win-win for us. We made mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to go to board meetings and that, you know, we lived happily ever after. So yes, I think definitely this is a paradigm for a new kind of activism by investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And you did mention that they spent 30 million on their, on the proxy listers and lawyers and everything. The activists did and the company spent the equivalent, but of course that's a, you know, drop in the bucket for Exxon. <laughs> So, yeah, so I, I'm kind of torn as to the idea whether you'll see, I feel like engine number one will probably do other director contests with uh, similar kind of themes. And yeah, I wonder, it sounds like it, it could be interesting. We might see some other director contests by other funds with similarly small stakes and launching, you know, pressing companies on similar issues, maybe on the social issues as well. It'll be interesting to see if that plays. One thing's very interesting is the minuscule stake. I mean, you know, when you had Tryon, 
Nelson Peltz launching campaigns at Procter and Gamble and Dupont. He had much larger sums invested, even though they were, and you know, larger percentage. I think one percent or two percent of the of the companies he was invested in when he launched his director contests. But now, you know, it seems like you could really win with this. You know, a, a really minuscule stake at a large cap company. So these large cap companies, I feel like a lot of them, you know, didn't put put, put up those protections. Uh, you know, classified boards because like, oh, nobody's ever going to attack us. Um, but now well, it's yeah, go ahead. At, during the takeover era, every company adopted a classified board and then they all kind of unscrambled that egg in the last few years. So because right. that became an issue for shareholders. So, you know, this is a two part issue. You've got people like engine number one who are going to be willing to undertake these things. And engine number one is now going to have an ETF fund inviting retail investors into this conversation. But you also have the Black Rocks, the Norges, the Vanguards who are increasingly willing to support this kind of initiative. These guys are so big, whether they're indexed or not, they might as well be indexed. The transaction costs of moving out of the stock are are monumental. So what are they going to do if they're not happy with a company that has just lost $22 billion or that has in some other way completely stepped off the path? The only thing they can do is support some kind of challenge. And in your note, you, you talked about you, you felt like uh, Exxon was a situation of a, of a company failure to communicate with his investor base. I mean, you think they had, yeah. uh, it wasn't just uh, that they didn't talk to engine number one. You feel like they didn't, you, you're looking, you know, looking at the results suggest that they didn't really understand how their investor base felt, or maybe they were ignoring it, or I don't know. You think that there was a communication problem? I definitely do. And I think this is a big problem for companies like Exxon that have been successful for so long. They kind of fall into an emperor's new clothes phenomenon where everybody inside the organization tells them what a great job they're doing and that this is going to you know, work out well forever. And they stop listening to people on the outside. And it seems to me that if I lost $22 billion, I'd get on the phone to all of my shareholders and I'd say, listen, I want you to know these are the changes that we're making. I want to answer any questions you might have. I want to hear your thoughts. You know, they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. No, interesting. And then you made an interesting point about the ETF that uh, it, it, I didn't even realize that. So engine number one is setting up a uh, an, yeah. a, an ability for retail investors to invest in. I saw that they are fundraising. And mm-hmm. uh, one banker that advises companies targeted by activists said to me, the fundraiser on this is amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, uh, that engine number one could raise a lot of money from institutional investors. I mean, this is basically yeah. Chris James' own money, but you know, they could get you know, fairly bigger. But it's interesting. How, so, so I don't know. What do you think? They, maybe they'll be back with an even larger investment. They have a, more assets under management next year. I, I, I'm sure they will. And I think you made a very good point that it won't just be E next time. It might be S. It might be G. Yeah. No, I'll be interested to see what happens. So, okay, this is great. Uh, uh, this has been uh, the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I really appreciate Nell Minow for taking a little time to speak with us. Ron, you are one of the best in the business. It's a great pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot, Nell. Have a nice one. You too.